Well, here in a few weeks, my wife Savannah and I will load up our car and head out of town with our three kids for a few days on a much needed uh, vacation. Now, technically, when we leave the driveway, we will be on vacation. That is time that I've marked off on my calendar to disconnect from my responsibilities here at church. But let me ask you something. If all a vacation consisted of was driving in a car, listening to a bunch of kids scream and complain and ask every few miles when the next bathroom break is going to be, how many of you would want to go on a trip every so often? Yeah, not many of us, right? I mean, that, if that's all a vacation consists of, that's probably not going to be something that we will enjoy from time to time. And it's for this reason, I believe, that doctors invented Benadryl and Ambien, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so while technically when we leave the driveway, we will be on vacation, the reality is it won't be until we drive 10 hours and get to the island off of South Carolina where we will be going and we unpack our car and we get settled into that house, will we officially really at that point be on vacation? And you see the, the picture of kind of doing nothing and hanging out by the pool and hanging out on the beach will be that motivating picture that keeps us going through that long journey that in all honesty will be a little bit tough at times to make it through and endure. Now last weekend we began this brand new series called Rewired where we've been studying something in scripture called God's kingdom. Now if you weren't with us last weekend, we learned that God's kingdom is, is here right now, but it's not here in its fullness yet. And so, so it's, it's here, it's, it's started, but it hasn't really begun just yet. You see, picture this time that we live in as if we have uh, kind of left the driveway, all right? But we haven't arrived at that vacation spot. And so 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came to this world and, and he entered this world and, and died the death that we all deserve because of sin in our life, he began starting his kingdom that would permeate the entire planet, all right? But again, this time that we live in is, is like that, that car ride on the way to our vacation spot. It is here, it has begun, but it's not here in its fullness just yet. And so you might be wondering right about now, what in the world is God's kingdom? Well, the definition that we're going to be going off of for the next several weeks in this series goes like this, that the kingdom of God, all right, is the reign of God where all creation is reclaimed and restored. You see, this universe and even our own lives are not how things were meant to be from the beginning. You see, therefore, since Jesus entered this broken world, God has begun reclaiming what's been lost and broken. He's been restoring those things back to his original perfect design. And so as a result, everyone everywhere has an opportunity to be called a citizen in this kingdom underneath his reign. And so regardless of our past, regardless of what you may bring to the table, all right, we can be granted citizenship, not because of what we do, but all because of what Jesus did in our place when he laid down his life on our behalf and he paid our debt. And so last week, we, we looked at the first miracle that Jesus performed, which was turning water into wine. He, he, in essence, rescued some newlyweds who were on the brink of a lot of shame at the reception by providing something that was on the verge of running out. And so the thing that we learned last week, that being a part of God's kingdom, it means that Jesus, he, he's going to cover over our shame. 
Now you see, after Christ turned the water into wine, the Bible tells us that he went around the world doing a lot of other miraculous acts, a lot of other supernatural things, and so miracles in Scripture, these kind of supernatural acts, we saw that, that they weren't things that, that in that moment Jesus was suspending the natural order. No, just the opposite. He was in fact restoring the natural order to how things were meant to be. And so after Jesus was doing miracles for a time, the Bible tells us that one day he then stood up on a mountainside and he began teaching and proclaiming to people what his kingdom was all about and what citizenship could look like for you and I. Now traditionally in the church, this message that Jesus preached that day has been referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And so in this series, what we're going to be doing is looking at the first part of that very famous message that Jesus preached on the hillside that day. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump to the New Testament book of Matthew, all right? Matthew is towards the old te- is in between the Old Testament book of Malachi and the New Testament book of Mark. It, it kind of serves as a biography on the life of Jesus. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. We encourage you to take that home with you and uh, consider it yours. That is our gift to you. And again, tonight we're going to be in chapter 5, picking up in verses 3 and 4. And last week we ended by challenging you to memorize what Jesus says in this verse. So I hope that you did that. I hope you did your homework, uh, though we will not hold you accountable to that right here, right now. All right. Now, as you're turning there... I want you to realize that out of the gate, at the very beginning part of this message that Jesus preached, he used a very effective form of communication simply called shock value, all right? Now, we've all probably had people in our life that say things just for shock value, right? And and if used correctly, if used right, shock value can impress something upon hearers, upon listeners, upon an audience, all right, that will not be easily forgotten. And so the first words out of Jesus' mouth here in this sermon was kind of Jesus' way of shocking the crowd by saying some stuff. No doubt when he said it for the very first time, his original audience would have thought, what in the world is he saying? Is he serious? But you see, rather than tuning him out, The shock value that we read here in Matthew 5 would have caused his audience to lean in and be a little bit more curious about this kingdom that he was supposedly providing all people. And so check out verse 3 of chapter 5. Here's what we read. Jesus says this, God blesses, first words out of his mouth, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, this was a surprising statement. All right, And if we're not careful, we will miss why. That word blesses, or maybe your translation simply says blessed, All right, is key in understanding why. Blessed is a word that is often overused in church or in Christian circles and is somewhat, in all honesty, lost its meaning. And so when Jesus says that, that God blesses those who are poor, he's saying that, that God will pursue that person and give him or her something that is beyond happiness and something that is beyond good fortune. And so in other words, this, this blessed person, this person that God has chosen to bless will be praised and congratulated for something that they did or maybe just someone that they were. Now, one of the reasons why it's tough for us to see how shocking of a statement that this was is because during the first century, that Jewish culture was built around what we would call an honor and shame context. 
Now, on the contrary, our westernized society is founded upon what you might call guilt and innocence, okay? And so much of what we talk about today revolves around this idea of what is right and what is wrong. This is why so many of us have a high conscience for justice. And so a lot of movies that we watch, a lot of plays or dramas that we go to or stories that we read have good guys, right, and bad guys in it. We teach our kids that if they don't act a certain way, then what emotion should they feel? Guilt, right? For doing something wrong. Presidential candidates debate over what's wrong in the world and how they might defend the rights of Americans. But you see, 2,000 years ago during Jesus' day, the basic fabric of their society was woven together by this concept called honor and shame. You see, there was an honorable way to act in front of outsiders, and there was a dishonorable way as well. I mean, if you didn't represent your family well, then not only would you feel this emotion of embarrassment and of shame, but you see, shame wasn't just an emotion that you felt, but it was also a position that you would be forced into by others in your community. And so during the first century, if, if you were impoverished, if you were poor, you literally lived a life of shame everywhere you went. I mean, everything from the clothes that you chose to wear, from the color of your teeth, the color of your skin, to, to how or when you ate, it was all affected by your poverty. You see, you couldn't walk around town without people knowing that you were poor. And so you lived in this constant state of shame. But Jesus says that they're the blessed ones, <laughs> that, that the kingdom of God belongs to them. I mean, that they will be happy, they, they will be congratulated, they will be praised, they'll be put up on this pedestal. I mean, people probably thought, what's this guy smoking? I mean, there's something not right here. Now, it's really important that we pick up on what Jesus is not saying in our text. He's not saying that you must be poor to follow him. He's not even saying that, that those in poverty are more favored in his eyes or because of their condition. No, if that were the case, then, that would, then our salvation would be contingent upon what we do and how much we give up as people. And so instead, the shocking message that Jesus was proclaiming that day went like this, that God's kingdom, it's for all people, not just some people right? I mean, God's kingdom is for all people, not just some people. Every life is sacred and has value. Every person has been made in the image of God. That's what we're told at the beginning of time. Now, very few of us who are followers of Jesus would disagree with that very much. But if I don't eventually engage with those who are living a life apart from Christ, I mean, I can say that every person is valuable, that God's kingdom belongs to all people. But you see, my silence over the long haul would say that I really only believe Jesus only came to save people who, who didn't live such a messy life. You see, one of the primary responsibilities of being a citizen in this kingdom is actually to go out and tell other people to come and see this king, experience this king who actually laid down his life for his subjects. He's not, he's not against people. He's, he's for people. God doesn't desire to get you back. God wants to bring you back. 
So this is why our vision as a church is to connect everyone everywhere to Jesus by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. In the next five years, we envision that Crossroads will be one church in five different locations across the tri-state region. Why? Because whether you live in Newburgh here, you live in Evansville, you live in Mountain Vernon, Wadesville, the west side, or you live all the way out in Carmi, you and your neighbors matter to God and And the angels literally lean over the edge of heaven waiting for one more citizen to take up residence underneath the king's reign. Now, our vision is about our work here locally. It's about our work here nationally. But you see, it's also about what we as a people, as a church, are doing around the globe. This is what we mean when we say connecting people to Jesus, everyone, everyone, everywhere, all right? And you see, crossroads... It is much bigger than, than what we're about here on our Newburgh campus. You see, the kingdom of God is much bigger than our church itself. Yet collectively, when we choose to be a part of this place, we are literally a part of something bigger than what you may see with your tangible eyes before you on a given weekend. You see, because of your generosity and because of how many of you selflessly give up your time and serve and actually fly overseas to engage unreached people groups and people who honestly get overlooked a lot of the time. God's work and God's kingdom is advancing and growing. I love being a part of a church that has a mission overseas. This past week we received a report that, that one of our partners over in Mali from December of 2015 to May of this year, they have seen over 544 children come into contact with their church and in their ministry. And those children heard about a king who willingly laid down his life for subjects. And at the end of that, those children responded by saying, you know what, I'm in on that deal. I will give up my life for someone who gave up his life for mine. You see, that never would have happened. If we didn't have an understanding of of what it means to give, what it means to be a part of the greater kingdom of God, if if we didn't know what it meant to to be multiplying leaders and multiplying churches, not just here in our country, but overseas. Now that 544 number may just seem like a number to you, but picture it like this. That's 544 more souls who have now been placed under the reign of God, who now have an opportunity for what's lost and what's been broken in their life to be reclaimed and to be restored. Lord. And you see, this victory, this picture of what can happen is a microcosm of what will happen if we stay focused on our vision of connecting people to Jesus, everyone everywhere, by multiplying leaders, campuses, and churches. Let's bring it back to our text here and, and see what, what Jesus says again. Take a look. Verse 3, he says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. That's the second most important part of what Jesus says here. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs, he says. Now let's be really just basic here for just a minute. To, to, to be poor, uh, to, to need something, means that you realize that you're broken and that you're incomplete. And so Jesus here, he, he used the example of someone in poverty to not only say that his kingdom is for all people, for everyone everywhere, but he's also saying that we will never know how much we need an intervention, okay, until we realize how desperate our condition really is. And so that word poor was a very intentional word on Jesus' part. It, it's a word that meant to be helpless, 
right? To be powerless, to be desperate, lacking in something, lacking in anything, begging for an intervention. That's the picture that we have here of this word poor. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever been in a situation where you have been totally helpless before? Okay, nobody. All right. There you go, a few of you, there you go. All right, about a month ago, my wife Savannah and I were driving home late one night from a restaurant that we were dining in down in downtown Evansville. Now, as we got in the car that evening after we had dinner, before we even pulled out of the parking garage, Savannah looked over at my gas gauge and she realized that the light was on. She said, hey, your gas light is on. When are you gonna stop for gas? Now, I made the mistake in that moment by responding by saying, I don't really need to stop. I've never run out of gas before. <laughs> now, to me, a gas light is just a good suggestion, all right? You know what I'm saying? And to me, I've always thought, how accurate could it really be? And so, never mind the fact that the light had been on for the previous four days while driving around, but now I had to prove to my wife that we really could get home without stopping for gas. By a brief show of hands, gentlemen, guys, you've been in that situation before. All right, so you, you feel my pain. Well, we get all the way down the Lloyd about a mile before we are to turn off the Lloyd into our neighborhood, and my car starts cutting out and sputtering, and the engine just completely dies. <laughs> And it's late at night, it's around midnight, we're both in really nice clothes, our kids are at home waiting on us, and I don't know what to do. And so my wife breaks the silence in that moment, and she says, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> and so I responded by saying, well, I will stay here and steer the wheel while you get out and push. I'm kidding, I got out and I began pushing down uh, the Lloyd in the emergency lane, and I've been pushing about 10 minutes or so, which was the equivalent of about 20 feet, all right, when a pizza delivery guy came up beside me. He got out of his car and he said, hey, no person should ever have to push his car all by himself. Could you use some help? And so that's what we were doing at that late of the hour. He got out and pushed us to a gas station for about 30 minutes later. Now, let me ask you something, all right? Now, my pride had already gotten me in trouble one time that evening, right? How stupid of me would it have been if when he pulled up beside me and asked if I needed some help, if I would have said, no, you know what, I'm good, right? <laughs> I'm actually out here just getting a good workout. You can keep going, delivering pizzas, all right? I'm, I'm doing just fine. You see, to deny help when we sense our desperation not, doesn't really help us out too much, does it? You see... Instead, we need to swallow our pride in those moments and ask for help. And so I realized in the moment that if I still wanted to have a marriage past that night, then I, it was in my best interest to ask that guy to help push our car to a local gas station. And so you walk in here tonight. And let's be honest, we're all at different points in our journey with Jesus, right? And so wherever you are in your journey with God, maybe you believe, maybe you've been believing for a while, maybe you're just mad, maybe you're angry, maybe, maybe, maybe you're in a good spot. You see, we oftentimes experience moments where we realize how incapable we really are. And so despite the facade of strength that we want to convey, these circumstances can strip us of these illusions that we walk around in and expose our need for something greater. Some refer to these circumstances as our, as our moments of desperation. 
You see, these are circumstances that, that leave you empty and leave you searching for something. Maybe your moment of desperation was when your spouse went in for a routine checkup only to be told that something had shown up on the scan. Your moment of desperation was when you went in for an ultrasound and it revealed no heartbeat. Your moment of desperation was, was when your wife found the text messages that had been exchanged between you and your coworker and your sin, you had been found out. Your sin had been exposed. You see, these can be defining moments for us. And according to what Jesus says here in our text, these circumstances, as backwards as it may seem, can actually position us to see more clearly why we need God. And so here's the thing. Our relationship with Jesus is defined in our moments of desperation. Our relationship with Jesus is defined in our moments of desperation. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, there's this part of you that is intrinsically aware of this inner brokenness and need. You see, whether you've been through something traumatic or not, we've all felt lonely before, right? We've all been angry. We've all felt this need to measure up to someone else's expectations. You see, those are whispers of our brokenness and of our inadequacies. And so how we respond in those moments matter. Jesus says that that being poor in spirit positions us to experience his goodness, to experience his grace, his full satisfying life here and now. But if we're honest, that's not our default response when our inadequacies are exposed. I mean, when that gaslight is on and we want to ignore it, we we like to tell ourselves, we got it, right? And so our tendency is to do just the opposite of what Jesus says here. What's the opposite? Well, it's about being rich in spirit. And so what does being rich in spirit look like? Well, to define this, I want to go through some statements that might describe our rich in spirit attitudes and dispositions in life. The the first one kind of goes like this. I can earn it. I can earn it. This kind of mentality or disposition is most commonly associated with those who have, have somewhat uh, been acquainted with Jesus or have attended church for a while. Maybe you've made a decision to follow Jesus in the past. You see, the grace of God that we once knew to be a free gift all of a sudden morphs all right, into something that we believe we need to earn. Now, most of the time, I will say, most of the time, it sneaks into our life, and this isn't very intentional on our part. Now here as a pastor, here's how I've seen this mentality typically work its way into our lives. We know something is off about us and that we need to be saved. We've been told that from an early age. Some of our earliest memories of church can be traced back to a man hammering down on a pulpit talking about how bad behavior leads to hell. And since hell is a really scary place and since really bad people go there when they die, you feared going there. And so when you were told that only Jesus could save you from hell, why wouldn't you get a get-out-of-jail-free get card? Now, the only problem with that is that fear never really had the power to change anyone. I mean, at the very least, let's be honest, fear is a terrible motivator, right? And so because some of us have been taught that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, much of our relationship with God has maybe been fear-based. I'll even give you some of the benefit of the doubt here. You may not fear going to hell because you know that you've made Christ your Lord, you've made him your Savior, but what's happened to a lot of us in all of our years, me included with Jesus, 
is that we've never really marveled, all right, at his kindness, at his goodness, at his grace and patience and strength because our initial focus went from getting out of hell, all right, to then maintaining our end of the deal by thinking that God had to stay proud of us by how we live. And so like how an insecure child that lives for the approval of his parents, much of our walk with Jesus has been defined by what we do and what we bring to the table Why do we do this? Well, because either we fear losing that get out of free jail card or we fear that Jesus will be disappointed in us. Therefore, we panic and we feel like that we are not doing enough for God. We feel guilty all day long when we accidentally sleep too late and skip our morning devotionals. Or maybe something happened to you this week that made you believe that that God is mad at you and so you showed up at church here to, to give God a favor, to do God a favor. Or perhaps you were recently baptized and and you're confused because you thought that life would swing your way, that once you got in that water and you came back out, that life would be a walk in the park. Yet that hadn't been the case and you thought, well, I did that for God. Now what I'm not saying, all right, is that obedience and faithfulness is not important. But understand that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount knowing that he was talking to a bunch of people who had been yanked around by the Pharisees who had mastered outward obedience. You see, on the surface, no one was more faithful than these guys. But their motive and their position position of their heart, it nauseated Jesus. Look at what Christ said about them later on in Matthew 23. He said this, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You're like whitewashed tombs. In other words, you look good on the outside. You know what to do. You know what God expects of you. But on the inside, on the outside, but but on the inside are full of the bones of dead, of the dead, and everything unclean. Now, how did a group of men who had literally dedicated their entire lives to the teaching of God's word end up being the recipients of these words from the God whom they were trying to please? Well, they became so impressed with their works that they had been immunized to their true broken condition. And so rather than being poor in spirit, they had become rich in spirit by believing that they could make God indebted to them by their obedience. It became a show for them where their obedience was a means for them to shout out to others, hey, look look at what I've done. Now here's what I'm learning, all right? There is a ton of freedom in being poor in spirit because that's when the pressure to be good enough ceases because you know what? We were never really good enough to begin with. Titus chapter three, verse five, a guy named Paul said it like this, that Jesus, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, not because of our faithfulness, not because of our obedience, our church attendance, or how well we serve, why? But because of his mercy. See, believing that we can earn it, It leads to this spiritual pride that is toxic and it results in bitterness and entitlement. This is when we feel as if God owes us something, that he'll be disappointed in our sin. But like last week, God can't be disappointed in your sin. Why? Because Jesus became your sin. And so if things don't turn out the way that we think it should, we get a little bit bitter and angry. Performing, producing, and earning also causes us to look down on others for not obeying the way that we think that they should. 
If someone isn't passionate about a certain ministry or isn't as involved as you think that they should be, you begin questioning their allegiance to Christ. And so if we're not careful, our obedience is no longer a response to the goodness and grace of Jesus, but our obedience can be used as a measuring rod in which we gauge the commitment of others. But I was thinking about this this past week. Could it be that God repeatedly uses the image of rest all throughout the Bible to describe our salvation, our relationship with him, so that we would constantly remember that it's about what he's done, not about what we do? Well, another statement that immunes us from being poor in spirit is when we live with this motivation, I can build it. I mean, why be dependent when we live when we have all the resources and abilities to be independent, why need God when it seems as if we're doing okay on our own? And we all have our own way of doing this, right? And this past week, I uh, came across an interview that Vanity Fair magazine did with Madonna back in 1991. And I'm going to throw this quote up here in just a second. But as I read through it, I want you to notice how Madonna recognizes this inadequacy and brokenness deep within her and how she responds. Here's what she said in her interview. She said, of all my will, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear, she says. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me. Because even though, she says, I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. I think Madonna here is simply putting into words what we all struggle with every single day. And by her acknowledgement, she said that she deals with her emptiness by proving to others that she can perform better and better. But you know what? Sometimes how we try to prove ourselves to those around us becomes the source of where we find our worth. Now, because we think these little kingdoms give us significance and personal value, they become tough for us to release, right? They tell us that, that we are rich in spirit. One day, Jesus was walking along, and he was approached by a wealthy, moral man who, who wanted to know what, what it would take for him to be connected back to God. And so Jesus responded by saying, well, you know, keep this command, do this, do that, be sure, and don't do that, all right? And, and the man responded by saying, well, well good, I, I've done all of it, I've kept all the commands, but Jesus could tell deep down that there was still something within his heart that, that he was holding on to, that he was grasping. And it was preventing this guy from being poor in spirit. It just so happened that for him, it was his bank account. It was his 401k. It was his portfolio. And so Jesus then caught the guy by surprise by saying this. He said, you still lack one thing, buddy. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, he says, and follow me. Now the Bible says that the, poor, the, the rich man walked away sad because following Jesus meant releasing the one thing in his life that had given him his identity and worth. Now wealth is not a bad thing. Jesus is not telling everybody to give up wealth, to give up possessions. You see, for this guy though, it is what his life revolved around and it led him into thinking that he was self-sufficient and he was independent. And so what's that one thing for you? What's that one thing that, that you've been building that is maybe toughest for you to give up? What's the personal kingdom that you've been building that gives you this sense of independence? 
Maybe it's your career. Maybe for you, like this guy, it's your portfolio. This could maybe be a hobby or it could even be your family. You see, the personal kingdoms we build are also the places where we tend to derive our identity. But what if Jesus has something better for us? Well, the last way we immune ourselves from our flaws and weaknesses is is by living this way, is by saying this, that I can hide it, right? This describes our masterful ability to hide and cover over the very stuff in our life that can lead us to deeper dependence and, and greater joy. This response on our part goes back to what Adam and Eve first did in the Garden of Eden when they experienced guilt for their rebellion and their disobedience. You see, they hid and they tried to clothe themselves because they felt this thing that we've all felt before in our life, and that's shame. Shame is how you react to the parts of your life that you want no one else to know about. And we've been talking about this as a church lately. Last week, I talked about how I struggle with depression from time to time, and I hesitated to share that with you. Why? Because that's a part of my life that gives me shame. I don't want you to know about that because it tells you that I'm weak, I'm broken, I don't have it all together. But I'm learning that there is no freedom in hiding. And a lot of you have actually reached out this past week and just thanked me for sharing that because for so long you have been carrying your depression around. You have felt this shame because you feel like you need to keep it from others. But when someone else can look you in the eye and say, hey, me too. I've been there before. I know exactly how you feel. All of a sudden you feel, you feel freedom to release some of that in your life. And you see, we hide those broken parts, those broken spaces within us because we fear that people around us are going to use it against us. But I can tell you, I'm at this point in my life where I don't fear sharing some of that brokenness with you. I now have greater fear of not sharing it with others. Because you see, darkness, it only grows, it only gets stronger the more it remains in darkness and the more that we contain it. It's probably for this reason a guy named Paul said it like this to a church that he loved, established, and planted during the first century. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, he says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so this church was struggling with performing, with earning, with hiding, with shame. And and Paul was saying, Christ paid for all that. You don't need to carry it around anymore. You can let it go. And so let me just throw this out there. If whatever it is that is giving you shame, whatever it is that you're dealing with or carrying around, if it makes you feel better to keep hiding it, then keep hiding it. Keep lying about it when people ask you about it. Keep dodging the questions when you feel as if someone's going to ask you about it. Keep covering it up. But, do you think that's really freedom? I mean, what, what, what if by doing that you're really forfeiting the rights of the identity that Jesus has actually emplaced upon you? You see, it's the equivalent of being freed for good from slavery only to willingly return to your slave master. I don't know what what statement describes how you've been rich in spirit lately. I don't know uh, how you've been overlooking or rejecting your need for the king of this kingdom, but sometimes we fear staring too intently at our weaknesses out of fear that that people might find out who we are and, and what the implications may be. And so maybe, just maybe, that's why Jesus, the very next thing in this message, he says this, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, another shocking thing Jesus says. Now, it's no coincidence that after talking about having a poor spirit, he mentions mourning. 
Mourning communicates this idea of longing for something more and greater beyond what we can offer ourselves. And so if you find yourself tonight mourning over your sin, if you find yourself longing for restoration, if you find yourself just wanting wholeness and a better solution, Jesus says, I can work with that. I'll take care of you. You see, our mourning over our sin is made known in our willingness to repent and rewire how we think and live. And so here in just a moment, we're, we're going to transition our service in, into taking communion. And so if, if you're going to be serving communion, you can go ahead and get up and, and go prepare uh, the bread and the juice. <clears throat> As we prepare for this, um, a guy named Paul who, who also wrote Galatians, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, another letter that he wrote in the New Testament to a church that he loved, he says that by taking communion, one thing that we do is that we proclaim Jesus' death. Now, we're going to do communion a little bit differently tonight because I'm going to encourage some of us in here to not take communion. You see, what in the world does proclaiming Jesus' death really mean? Well, when Jesus died, all of our sin and brokenness and shame and guilt died with him. And so communion is actually this tangible act of surrender on our part. We literally say, today, this week, right now, as best as I can, I am powerless, God, and lost in my sin that that Jesus had to die for in my place. And so the reason why I'm going to encourage some of us to not take it is because Paul says in this letter, it is such a significant and sacred act that a lot of us, we take it in an unworthy manner. And so what defines an unworthy manner? Well, if you're distracted right now. In other words, if your mind is maybe focused on the Cardinals game or if you're thinking about where you're going to eat after this, then I just want to encourage you to just pass on communion. No one's going to look down on you. There are weekends that I don't take communion. You know why? Because my mind is so focused on my message that I can't properly understand that which it is that I'm doing in that moment. Another way that we take communion in an unworthy manner is if we're withholding something. There's some of us who are withholding something from God. We're choosing to be rich in spirit in this way. And so maybe you refuse to forgive someone for what they did to you. Later today or this week, you know that you're going to do something that you know you shouldn't do. And so if you were to take communion right now, you'd be choosing to live a double life. Because you're declaring surrender, all right? Understand this, you'd be declaring surrender, but deep down you're still holding on to some stuff. And so if that's you, rather than taking communion, here's what I'd suggest you do. Why not just use these next few minutes to work some stuff out with God? Just be honest. You can't hide it from him. He knows, he sees. And so guys, you can come on down front and begin passing the trays and And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to let you just have a few moments to privately reflect among yourself, all right? I don't want you to eat the bread or drink the juice just yet because I'll I'll then come back up here and explain the bread and explain the juice. And and we'll just kind of take it together as a church. This is something different, but but that's how we're going to do it uh, tonight. And, And so again, if you feel like I'm going to be taking an unworthy manner, no one's going to look down on you for just passing on it, all right? But if you are going to take it, just hold on to those emblems. Have a moment with God, reflect, and then I'll come back up here and walk us through uh, the bread and the juice, all right?